This is Philosophy Takes on the News. Hello, welcome to another Philosophy Takes on the News. I'm Simon Kirchin, a philosopher based at the University of Kent. We're recording on Thursday the 3rd of March. This is the week that saw Russia's invasion of Ukraine continue. And again, as last week, as we record this episode, Russian attacks are still happening with no end in sight. The situation in Ukraine has dominated the news, but other things have been happening. Amongst them, UK businesses have been urging the Chancellor to delay the rise in national insurance and acclaimed children's author and illustrator Shirley Hughes died. In this week's episode, we'll be thinking about the situation in Ukraine and also thinking about the fate of our oceans. We'll also see what else we get on to. Joining me to discuss this week's news, we have Helen Froh, who's back again for another week. Thanks, Helen. Um, Helen's Professor of Practical Philosophy at the University of Stockholm. Hi, Simon. Thanks for having me on again. Thanks, Helen. And joining me and Helen this week, we've got Chris Armstrong, who's Professor of Political Theory at the University of Southampton. Hi, Chris. Hi, Simon. Hi, Helen. Nice to be on. Thanks, both of you. So um, as we did in the previous episode, uh, let's begin with Ukraine. Last week, we raised the issue of sanctions, which I'd I'd like to return to, um, since there's been a lot of attention this week on them, not just uh, sanctions that have been passed against Russian businesses and Russian leaders, but also a focus on whether sanctions are effective. Um, And that was something we were talking about last week, saying that sanctions are justified if they are effective. Uh, And I'm just wondering if if any more nuance is required here, given what we've heard in the past week. Chris, do you want to pick this up first for us? The one thing I wonder is whether we want to say that sanctions can't be justified if they're ineffective. Uh It seems sometimes there's some kind of value in expressing our condemnation of someone's behaviour, even if there's a relatively small or even non-existent prospect that will change how they're acting. Uh And of course, the difficult question there is going to be whether that expression is important enough to justify imposing costs on other people, Mm because sanctions are likely to be really costly for many of the people we claim to care about. Um, I think it it seems to me to be the case that sanctions that that involve small costs for others might be justified in expressive terms. At least I don't think we'd want to rule them out. Uh-huh. So is, it, is there the thought there that, that sanctions are important symbolically, uh, just, just yes. to, to express what, 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 what we, you know, our, our condemnation? I suppose we could think about that in a couple of different ways. We might think about them purely symbolically or purely uh-huh. expressively. It's simply important sometimes to stand up and say that we don't agree with things that are happening, mm-hmm. even at some small cost to others. You know, sometimes we think it's the right thing to tell the truth to other people, even if no one is helped by that and perhaps someone is somewhat hurt. I suppose we might also say that there is a an instrumental point when people stand up and say this is wrong and we won't accept it, that we might encourage others in future to act. Although I suppose that then collapses back into a more instrumental justification. Yeah. Although kind of indirect, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Uh, just to reading about sanctions this week. So there's the the direct harm that might cause to, you know, in this case, the Russian state or Russian leaders or Russian businesses. And then there's the kind of indirect consequence, which is trying to prevent something like this happening in the future. I mean, something that, that you mentioned a couple of times, then I'll bring, bring Helen in, is the harms that we might be causing to other people. And that's something I, I want to get onto. But 
But um, Helen, do you want to come in on, in on this topic, first of all, on, on expressivism? I mean, one thing to say is that um, it's not clear that this is really an argument for ineffective sanctions as opposed uh-huh. to just changing what counts as effective. And I think one of the interesting questions in this context is what's the goal of the sanctions, right? So, and, and that goal may well be changing over time. So there may have been some hope at the outset, you know, this time last week that uh, a drastic and, and rapid response could, uh, you know, give Putin second thoughts um, that maybe he'd stop early on with only a kind of limited incursion into Ukraine's territory. That hasn't happened. Um, and so, of course, no sanction can now have that goal. But we can adjust what the goals are of the of the sanctions. So I think I'd be I'd be a bit cautious about saying that this is a case in which we might try to justify ineffective sanctions. I think we've we've got to pay much more attention to what the goals of the sanctions are. Um, and I also, I mean, I, I worry. I mean, I do take the point that the clearly sanctions also have expressive value. But one worry about the sort of thinking that we might be justified in that the that expressive value could justify kind of small sanctions. This is a worry that what you express is that there's some kind of correlation or proportionality between the gravity of the wrong that you're trying to condemn and the action that you're taking. And so if we just have these very kind of small sanctions that impose very minor harms, the risk that what we express is something like, we think this is a little bit bad, but you know, it's not really wrong because of course, if it were really wrong, we'd have to do much more. Um, and so the, I think we should be cautious about the idea that sort of a bit of sanctions couldn't be wrong or couldn't um, do any harm, um, because I think it could do. I think in some cases it could be that it's sort of, you know, go big or go home in a sense, right? If you're not going to go the whole hog, then moderate or mild sanctions are worse than nothing, actually. Yeah, thanks. Can I then just come back onto, onto the point that I've been thinking about this week regarding sanctions then? Because um, it seems to me that the way Russian society is organised and the economy is organised, the political uh, arena, there's lots of sanctions that are coming in of all sorts. But at some point, the people who are going to get harmed are a lot of the Russian people. They're in a situation where, even though we've seen some very brave Russians out there protesting against the war, very quickly this is being clamped down upon. For quite a period of time, sanctions could come in and quite innocent people who had nothing to do with the war and don't want anything to do with it are going to get harmed. I'm just thinking there, could we explore the rights and wrongs of, of, of sanctions in in um, in that situation? Because clearly the people who are taking the decisions are going to be somewhat insulated from the consequences for quite a time. I'm wondering, you know, in that case, even though it might be the only thing we can do, what does that does that change our thinking regarding justifications if, if the majority of people are going to get harmed or are more or less impotent in, in, in what they can do regarding the, the war? So I think one thing that's important is that we don't imagine that sanctions are this black box and we, uh-huh. we pull a lever on one side and an effect comes out on the other side. Right. We need to think about what the mechanism is that connects our action with the outcome we're looking for. And I think this is often implicit when people talk about sanctions. Implicitly, the theory must be that what we're doing is making the victims of the regime even more miserable so that they rise up and displace their leaders. And I think putting that front stage is really important when we kind of evaluate sanctions. But it also means we have to really think seriously. I think it behoves us to look at the kind of political science and Mm -hmm. to ask, does that in fact tend to be the outcome that we see when, when sanctions are imposed? Is this a plausible narrative? Uh, that has worked in the past. And now I think that the, the picture is fairly depressing, uh-huh. unfortunately. Um, so political scientists obviously disagree about this stuff, but they nevertheless agree that sanctions only work in a minority of cases. Mm-hmm. And they also seem to agree that there are very widespread, typical, regular negative effects. 
because of course, although we're trying to target the policy of a brutal leader, that leader is going to respond in some way to the imposition of sanctions. Yeah. So political scientists talk about two kinds of effects. They talk about a resource concentration effect and a threat repression effect. The resource concentration effect says, okay, we're now being starved of resources. You've cut off some of our foreign income. What we don't want to happen is for people within the ruling elite to defect. So we want to make sure that the smaller share of resources we have goes to our fellow elite members. And that yeah. means that we take resources from the excluded, which is not a good outcome. And then the threat repression effect has the dictator thinking, so what are outside powers trying to do here? They're trying to ferment discontent and rebellion. Mm -hmm. And of course, that is what people who impose sanctions are often trying to do. And so they start to identify real or imagined threats to their authority. They start to imprison more people. They start to increase the, the incidence of torture. And I just think all of that really needs to be thought about explicitly rather than just having this very general, slightly woolly discussion about sanctions. I think it's important to think about the consequences for civilians that are actually factored in to the model of sanctions in many cases. Thanks, Chris. That's very helpful, but sobering. Sorry, Helen. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's right. I think we, there is a tendency to just to kind of talk about sanctions as if they're all just of a kind. Um, and of course, there's just a wide range of things that you can do. And and as Chris said, some of these things are going to have effects on individuals. Now, I doubt any of us really care about Russian billionaires not being able to get to their fancy houses. But, um, you know, we certainly care about the effects on ordinary Russians, many of whom are already extremely poor. Um, and so there's those kinds of effects which we should um, certainly be concerned about. But then other um, effects are those which are directed at the state level and are trying to uh, destabilize the economy such that it impedes the functioning of the state. Um, and things like um, rendering resources inaccessible. So um, asset freezes, for example, can render enormous chunks of money. So I think I read yesterday that there's something like $600 billion of a, a Russian money, which has now been rendered inaccessible to the Russian state as a result of various sanctions and, and other measures. These kinds of things are kind of ways in which you can hamper somebody's ability to fight a war. I don't know how much access, how much money the Russians have access to, but $600 billion is a lot of money in anyone's book. So it's important to distinguish between the effects that we think certain types of sanctions will have and whether those types of harms can be justified and because you can you can use you know it's not it's not as if if you do sanctions you've got to go for the whole package right you can pick and choose the mm -hmm. the sanctions that you do i mean i think chris is certainly right that insofar as some the thought of the justification here is supposed to be something like look if you if you make the costs for ordinary russians high enough then they will rise up and somehow overthrow this horrendous regime um, I think Ukraine are more likely to militarily defeat the Russians than for Putin to be overthrown by ordinary Russians. It's, you know, it may be true that if he becomes increasingly unstable, that there are people. May be true there's people who are positioned higher up in the in the regime who are able to somehow convince him to take an early retirement. But um, the idea that your ordinary Russian civilian, you know, not sort of discounting the bravery that we have seen of people protesting, but the idea of some kind of popular rebellion, just, I mean, the chances of that are vanishingly small. And so it would absolutely, I think, be impermissible to use, to, to have that kind of tool in mind as a justification for the harms that you're imposing. It's just, you know, it's completely unfair to and unreasonable to think that the Russian population are going to do that. 
Um, but that's not to say that other types of sanctions couldn't be effective. And again, this brings us back to this question of, of what we mean by effective in this situation, which, of course, partly is going to be a question not just about Ukraine, but the, the broader deterrent role that um, is at least playing something of a justificatory role in this case. And those kinds of effects are so difficult to to judge because, of course, you're relying on counterfactuals, right? You're trying to make guesses about what would have happened had you not imposed these sanctions um, and you're making guesses about events which might lie years in the future and whether they will or won't happen based on what you do now. And so although clearly we do think there is such a thing as deterrence and it has value and it can justify the imposition of harms, it's really hard to know in concrete terms just how much harm you might be permitted to impose in the hope that this will deter some future act um, down the line. Yeah, I mean, just just thinking about that, Helen, I mean, thinking about the, the current moment we're in, right, the, the first week of this invasion, I mean, one could say, so I hear everything you're saying about, you know, the effectiveness of sanctions, but we've just got to throw the kitchen sink at this to try to try mm. to slow it down. And then then kind of in a in a cool hour work out which ones are working and which ones aren't. Because we then we've got to be thinking about not just Ukraine, but those other countries and think about trying to trying to stop this regime in its tracks. Yeah, I mean I think that's right. And I, I think there's also a kind of um a thought that the sooner that you can affect change in this kind of war, the better, because as it drags on, people's attention will drift, right? Um the political pressure will wane, other things will happen. You know, if we get another wave of COVID, um, it, it might not take a huge amount in six months' time to knock this war off the headlines. And so you can see that there's there's not there's this other dimension of really trying to capitalise on the moment where everybody is gripped by what's going on to really try and bring as much pressure to bear as you can, partly because you know just <laughs> that this attention will wane and the pressure will lessen if it turns out that this war drags on for months or years. Um, and so the, the, we might think there's a kind of window here where sanctions can be maximally effective. And so it really is worth, you know, taking a bit of a punt on what's going to work and what won't, simply because the window will close over time. Um, I was just going to say that another reason for maybe thinking that there might be a relatively small window in terms of effectiveness is that, of course, the targets of sanctions are not stupid people and find ways of responding to the hardships yeah. that sanctions are supposed to cause. So they find ways to evade sanctions, to move resources through you know, new technologies. And so that, that might give us additional reason for thinking that if sanctions are really going to bite, they will bite if they are, they'll, they'll bite initially and perhaps if they're imposed in unexpected ways. Hmm. Because over time, mm. it actually looks like in sanctioned states, we get lots of opportunities for, for elites to further enrich themselves. Yeah. by importing embargoed goods illicitly and so on. Yeah. Um, okay, thanks both of you for, for talking us through sanctions. I'm sure we will be returning it, to it again at a later date. Um, Helen, you've also been thinking about some other things um, this week. Well, I that. mean, sort of related, really, um, because it, I mean, we're talking about the effectiveness, effectiveness of sanctions, but one of the sort of questions that's most guess, salient to those of us who work on the ethics of war is whether there's a kind of parallel worry about the force that Ukrainians are using to defend themselves, because it's a kind of standard principle of, of justified force that you can only use force that only ha that has some chance of achieving a proportionate good, what's normally called in just war theory, a reasonable prospect of success. And there's a worry that the odds um, are so overwhelmingly in the Russians' favour in the long term that resistance by the Ukrainians, especially given that resistance is going to escalate, and we're already seeing this, right, um, that the 
resistance by the Ukrainians is causing Russia to escalate its attacks, to escalate the violence. There's a worry that um, given the low prospect of success, uh, the Ukrainians' resistance is unjustified. Um, and I think this is, um, I mean, I'm not sure what we should really think about this at the moment. Um, I think it's certainly true that if it reaches a point at which the prospects of success are very low, given the harms that are now at stake, it would be impermissible for the Ukrainians to continue to resist. Um, I don't know if we're at that point yet, because again, things are still new and uncertain. Um, it's unclear exactly how um, the Russians will respond to what's happened in this first week. But it does seem likely that if we end up in some kind of you know, months-long, years-long campaign of attrition, basically, by the Russians, then the Ukrainians simply cannot defeat um, I mean, I, the Ukrainians are obviously still hoping desperately that NATO will enforce some kind of no-fly zone. They're really hoping that at some point there might be military support from NATO. NATO countries have been very clear that's not going to happen. And so if that's playing a sort of, you know, if that's supposed to be a key justification or part of the justification, I mean, it may not be in the minds of Ukrainians, but if, if when we're thinking about this, part of this is we're thinking we just don't know what NATO will do. I mean, it seems clear that NATO will not intervene in those ways. Um, and given that, the chances of the Ukrainians defeating the Russians are pretty slim. So, um, thanks, Helen. Um, so, so what what do you, what do you think? <laughs> I mean, do, do you think that there's any justification for carry on fighting? I, mean, I, can, I can see the reason, you know, to, to be worried about about this. But I mean, there might be some reasons to to carry on fighting even in this situation. So, there might be just a kind of, you know, symbolically, it's very important. It's a matter of. I mean, the problem the problem is um, you've got to have proportionate goods that are going to to warrant, you know, not just the harms that you're imposing on Russian soldiers, which, you know, we're talking in many cases about very young men here who, you know, the general sense seems to be that some of them just really have no clue what they're doing. And, you know, the harms to those people count. Killing those people counts. And it's wrong to pointlessly kill those people, even if they are themselves engaged in wrongdoing. Um, and there's also now, of course, just the completely predictable harms to civilians. And I just don't think that the the defence of honour and so on warrants those kinds of harms when there's no prospect of actually securing Ukraine sovereignty. And so, I mean, I should say, I mean, it's not like so. Say we say we say we agreed that the Ukrainians at some point, so say this drags on for a month, and we think you know at that point their chances of victory are so so slim that resistance is unjustified. It's not as if that's the end of the conversation because it just seems like a kind of brute fact that the Ukrainians are going to resist. Really no chance that these people are just going to surrender. And so third parties still then have a, a question to answer, what do you do when you have an unjustified aggressor and then you have an innocent victim who wrongly defends themselves? It's not as if you intervene on the aggressor's side, right? So it's, it, it, it certainly seems to be an open question then whether it could be permissible for third parties to support the Ukrainians, even granting that the Ukrainians are acting wrongly. Because given that they are, in fact, going to resist, it could still be the lesser of two evils to try to help them to resist, at least in certain ways, right? Um, certain supplies that help them, at least sort of defensive medical supplies and so on, um, that allow them to limit the harms of the resistance that they are anyway going to carry out. Um, so I think it's not like it's the end of the conversation to say, what they're doing is impermissible. I think we may well just be faced with the kind of brute fact that they are in fact resisting. And then this gives rise to this difficult set of questions, which I don't think just war theorists have really thought about enough, um, of what do you do in the face of impermissible resistance against an unjustified aggressor? It seems it does seem important to kind of say this is part of the fact that we are kind of driven to these conclusions about what the Ukrainians might be 
permitted or not permitted to do is is kind of it's part of the sort of the tragedy and the horror of, of of war right the fact that someone like putin can make it such that it is impermissible for people to defend themselves against this blatantly unjustified horrific invasion we shouldn't shy away i don't think we should shy away from the fact from saying that sometimes defense is impermissible we should definitely be very alive to the fact that that's part of what makes unjustified invasions so wrong is that you're able to sort of, and why, why these kind of massive imbalances of, of power in the state systems is so bad is that you can make it the case that not only do you get to wrongly invade a country you can make it by doing it with overwhelming force you can make it wrong for them to resist and it's tempting to think well that must just show that the moral view is wrong i don't think that's true i think our intuitions on this stuff is pretty firm you shouldn't pointlessly kill people but it does show us that it's really, you know, it's a kind of whole other dimension of, of moral horror when you think about the fact that you can, if you do it badly enough, right, if your violence is sufficiently widespread and brutal, you can thereby make it impermissible for people to resist you. And, you know, there are sort of many lessons here for thinking about how, how we allow states to acquire these positions of such dominance that they're able to do this to their neighbours. Thanks, Ellen. Um, I think that phrase moral horror is uh, is a well-judged one. Okay, let's leave it uh, there, both of you. I'm sure we'll return to think about Ukraine in, in future episodes. Um, but for now, we'll just pause and uh, we'll see you again in part two. Welcome back to part two. Oceans are never far out of the news, be it the spill of some hazardous waste, concerns about the amount of trade that goes through our ports, or how climate change is dramatically affecting our seas. Just last week, the UK Marine Conservation Society released figures that showed that so-called bottom trawling for fish has increased threefold in dogger banks since Brexit, despite a UK government pledge to ban the practice. And there are plenty of other examples. Chris, you've recently published a book, uh, Blue New Deal, in which you detail the importance of oceans and argue for a new radical way of thinking and acting in relation to them. Can you outline some of your ideas for us, please? Yeah, sure. So I think that we have inherited some ways of thinking about and governing the ocean from the myths of history that turn out to be deeply unhelpful right now. So there's a kind of part dependency there. And I want to ask some troubling questions about whether we are in any way equipped to deal with the the crises that we now face out out there on the ocean. So clearly crises are kind of constructed in one way or another. And the the crises I want to construct are the environment stroke, biodiversity stroke, climate crisis, Mm -hmm. and a crisis of inequality in the ocean economy, where there's absolutely burgeoning inequality because the, the rules of the game are so permissive. So the book is really an attempt to work out how we got to where we are, why that really is not serving us well, and how we might do better. Great. And and could you outline, perhaps for, for everyone, just explain kind of how important the oceans are f- for us? I mean, there's, a, there's a, some interesting um, statistics I, I read in the book. So the one we were just talking about before we started recording is about phyloplankton, which account for about 70% of the world's oxygen supply. And I mean, things like that just struck me as, well, some things that, that I didn't know. And it strikes me that there's a very good case you make about the oceans being so 
utterly important across the whole world, as you said, biodiversity environment, but also to, to the lives of millions upon millions of people. And we really need to rethink that. So could you just take, just fill us in, you know, from, from you, what strikes you, what, why the oceans are so important, and then we can move on to, um, you know, what we should be doing in relation to them. Yeah, I mean, I think that's really an important first step to just recognise the ways in which we're dependent on the ocean in ways that we don't really have much cause to reflect on until mm-hmm. a crisis is on the horizon. So certainly, like like you, I'm sure I went to school and I was told that the rainforests were the lungs of the earth because they absorb carbon dioxide, use the carbon, emit the oxygen, and that's true. But we now know that the ocean is by far the biggest absorber of carbon and emitter of mm-hmm. oxygen out there. So we're we're highly dependent on it. And there we have plankton to thank because they're the things yeah. that are doing the absorption and emission of oxygen. The ocean performs roles like regulating weather and temperatures. If we didn't have the ocean, our planet would almost certainly not be inhabitable at all. Mm-hmm. One reason being that water has this amazingly high heat capacity. So you can just throw solar energy into the ocean almost ad infinitum while seeing relatively modest increases in the temperature of the ocean. Yeah. And that's why that's why on a really hot day you run into the sea because it's nice and cool. It drives monsoon patterns that feed hundreds of millions of people and agriculture and especially in the global south. Hundreds of millions of people are nutritionally dependent on fish. So it's really the underpinning of all kinds of uh, you might put it ecosystem functions that we we just take for granted. Uh, we think of the ocean as kind of too big to fail, but uh-huh. we are really sorely pressing at that assumption now, I think. Uh-huh. And so because in, in your book, you lay out some interesting history around thinking about the ocean and the kind of how we've inherited a certain legal structure, which you're, which you're very critical of. Could you fill that in for us a little bit? And then we can move on then to thinking about how we should be thinking about the ocean from, from your point of view. Yeah, so to get kind of slightly... Hegelian. It looks like our interaction with the ocean and the way we thought about the ocean is exhibited this kind of dialectical structure. Uh-huh. So we have two great principles of oceanic governance that I call freedom and enclosure. So freedom we associate with Grotius, who says that in a sense, the space of the ocean and the resources of the ocean look like what we would now call a pure public good. We can just go on using them and consuming them without doing any harm to anybody else. Mm-hmm. And so that underpins this idea that we we can travel where we want on the ocean and we can scoop what we want out of the ocean. And it's not really anyone else's business. Now, Grotius almost immediately is criticised by people who point out that many oceanic resources, if that's the language we want to use, are in fact in limited supply. And that even in Grotius's time, we're already pressing up against some of those limits in herring fisheries and whaling operations. So for example, John Selden argues in his book, Mary Clausen, The Closed Sea, that because our impacts on the ocean will affect other people's livelihoods, because there's a point to enclosure, Mm-hmm. We ought to be permitted to to carve out sections of the ocean as the specific domain of one country or another. Now, in those days, we're only talking about a couple of nautical miles of the mm-hmm. sea. Um, we eventually get the kind of the, the cannon shot rule, which says that 
countries ought to be able to claim something like a 12 mile territorial sea because they can't really control anything beyond that. So what's the point? Mm -hmm. The big revolution happens in the years after the Second World War. Mm -hmm. The exploitation of fossil fuels offshore really steps up. We start to discern the existence of potentially extremely valuable minerals on the seabed and the idea that there is a point to claiming larger and larger swathes of the ocean estate property starts to feel politically salient. So the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea, UNCLOS, eventually comes into law in 1994 and gives states these things called exclusive economic zones. So for up to 200 nautical miles, the state gets to decide what happens to natural resources within those zones. And allegedly, in principle, exerts a kind of custodianship over local ecosystems. Yes, yeah, so, I mean, I was really struck by all your discussion of um, exclusive economic zones or EEZ. So, so I'll just read out just uh, one one statistic that you've got in the book early on to, to give people a, a sense of how important they are. Or consider the Pitcairn Island groups, a British overseas territory in the South Pacific, with a population of fewer than 70 people. Its EEZ now ranges over 800,000 square kilometres, which makes it three times the size of Britain's total land area. Strikingly, this section of marine territory is comparable in size to the entire EEZ of China. So it really gives you a sense of how important these zones are. And as you say, it gives you exclusive rights over, well, you know, whatever might be there in, in both the sea and the, and, and the seabed. So, so yeah, so you've been talking about freedom and enclosure there. So can you take the, the story on one notch, theoretically, from, from, from your point of view? about? Um, yeah, so I think with any, good, with any good dialectic, there has to be a resolution, right? And uh-huh. I think we start to see the origins of a potential resolution in some of the debates leading up to the Convention on the Law of the Sea, specifically when discussions take place over these mineral resources on the deep seabed, what gets called the high seas, far out beyond any country's exclusive economic zone. Mm -hmm. And we start to see some incredibly boosterish at the time projections for how not only are these things going to be extremely valuable to the industries of the future, but we're going to be completely dependent on them. Mm-hmm. And so what you find is a narrative from the global south that says we can't just let it be the case that the principle as is a principle for fish on the high seas first come first served because of course we know that that means that relatively few industrialized countries will scoop up these resources we will lose out, and in fact, we'll doubly lose out because those countries will no longer be dependent on the minerals that we, in fact, export. Our, yeah. our somewhat undesirable place in the global economy will be completely undercut. So we find an argument for a new global organisation to manage these resources in a more equitable way. So that's the, the origin of what gets called the International Seabed Authority. Now, it turns out that these kind of boosterish suggestions that we were very soon going to be harvesting these polymetallic resources were boosterish. Mm-hmm. And we still haven't begun to extract these resources, but we are now extremely close. Right. And the, the pedal is really kind of hitting the metal now because we still don't quite have rules in place to either regulate what happens to the proceeds 
of seabed mining or to prevent mining if it's going to have really undue environmental consequences. So one thing about bottom trawling, for example, we we tend to think as bottom trawling is really just destructive. It kills lots Uh of fish. It kills everything on the seabed. But we've recently learned that bottom trawling actually causes the emission of more carbon than the whole global aviation industry, which is shocking. Yeah. But the the deep seabed out there could be fairly comprehensively raised by these seabed mining operations, stirring up lots of carbon, destroying or harming lots of organisms that because they live in a place very far below the surface where there's almost no light, almost no heat, are incredibly long living Mm -hmm. and just cannot repair their bodies from that kind of damage feasibly so it could be hugely environmentally destructive uh, which i think is is deeply worrying and the the technology has just advanced much more quickly than the legal political framework that we would need to to regulate its use so what sort of legal and political framework do you think we need to put in place then chris so towards the end of the book, I get a bit radical and engage in some blue sky thinking, or as I put it, blue ocean thinking, which is a terrible pun. But I think fundamentally, we've inherited a way of thinking about the high seas, mm-hmm. which is about 70% of the ocean, actually about 96 or maybe even 98% of its volume, as this huge ecosystem that we can't possibly damage, a very kind of Grotian idea, so why should there be constraints on our activities? Given that we now know that that's not true, I think we should transition to thinking about it as a a place we ought to fundamentally protect from impacts unless we are reasonably sure that they are going to be safe. So I kind of suggest we think about the high seas as a kind of, on a kind of national park, model or maybe an international uh-huh. park where we we have kind of stewardship duties but extractive activities really ought to be seriously constrained so i think on the high seas given that no one is actually dependent on using the high seas for their livelihoods we have an opportunity to to shift our thinking so that we we decide not to exploit this huge ecosystem okay great thanks um Helen, have you got anything you want to come in us? Just on, the, on, the, on that last thought, I mean, what, what counts as use here? Um, what, what kinds of things is it that you think would need to be restricted? So I don't have a problem clearly with access, people going to the high seas, people deriving kind of well-being from their experience of the high seas. There are lots of small island states which are clustered around bits of the high seas, which are historically important to them, that they've traversed over history. I'm concerned about activities that are likely to be destructive of the environment. I don't know if that's helpful. I don't know well, if that's so, what so, so does all, you know, do ordinary boats not pollute the seas? Like, I mean, ordinary ways of travelling around the water, do they not cause damage to the environment? On the high seas or in general? Well, in general, I'm just kind of, Trying to get a handle on, I mean, what it, what's your kind of your main, I mean, I get that these aren't your main targets here, but if we have a kind of national park attitude, um, what are mm. the sorts of things that we're going to permit and the sort of things that we're not? Right. So I think like in a, a national park, we really should not have people, have a problem with people visiting these places, experiencing them as amazing ecosystems. But as with a national park, we don't 
generally get to dig stuff up and transform that ecosystem in a way that undermines the ecosystem functions that are the reasons we value it, in a sense. So this doesn't necessarily mean that we shouldn't allow any extractive activities, but I think that we should be pretty cautious, given what we now know about the ways in which some of these ecosystems are really fundamental to the wider environment in ways we don't fully understand. Do you, do you think that one of the, the challenges will be that there's a kind of asymmetry in the, the ways in which harmful activities affect conventional national parks tend to undermine its aesthetic value quite significantly, right? So one of the reasons why we don't let people dig stuff up and so on is because it's going to look really awful. Um, and we might think there's no, there's no sort of equivalent push in the in the case of the oceans that I mean, a lot of the motivation for individuals for protecting their national parks is simply because they want them to look nice. And we might think, when people just think there's nothing they can do that's going to make the ocean look bad, um, well, these kind of activities, you know, they won't be detrimental in any way to its aesthetic value, whether there's much less motivation there to kind of to protect them. Yeah, that may well be true. Actually, there are some ways in which things that we've done have made the ocean look and smell pretty bad. Mm. Uh, so. Um, Lots of conservation scholars are really worried about the spread of what get called dead zones, where agricultural runoff spurs these massive blooms of algae that suck all the oxygen out of the water and cause all the fish and everything else to die, um, destroying livelihoods in the process. Also in the west of Africa, they have a major problem now, which seems to be related to kind of shifting weather patterns and heat distribution in the Atlantic because a kind of seaweed called sargassum which as you can guess comes from the Sargasso Sea is now washing up on the shores of countries like Ghana in absolutely massive quantities Mm. and the stuff stinks and it prevents you taking your boats out to sea it undermines tourist industries and fishing industries and yet it's not obviously anyone's responsibility because sargassum is literally floating in the middle of the Sargasso Sea, which is part of the high seas. And no one has any responsibility for this problem, um, which is a quandary. It Mm. might turn out that Sargassum ends up being a resource. It might be, some people think that we can spread it on farms as a kind of fertilizer, but perhaps not because it's salty. Um, But at the moment, it's mainly a problem. Um, So I think there are some ways in which our aesthetic enjoyment of the ocean can be degraded through human action. Yeah, the, the, the other example going through my head is these huge, kind of almost pl- floating plastic islands that have been created over the last few years um, that just, you mm. know, just drift across the various oceans. Obviously quite destructive, but also just look look ugly. I mean, they're just you know, terrible. Yeah. Um, Chris, then, can, can it, then just to, to, to make it make the, the point then quite sharp, just think about what you've been saying. So the, the, the worry is that, We've, we've been left with a legal and political framework, which is it's either freedom or it's enclosure. And then you're mm. advocating for basically a common ownership model. Would that be that be right? Yeah, something like that. Although I'm, I'm hesitant about the language of ownership. Yeah, sure. sure. So, so, so talk us through that. Then. So one of the one of the insights of Tony Honoré's thinking about ownership and property is, mm-hmm. well, I'm going to mangle this now with what I think might be a useful kind of metaphor. But we, we sometimes think about property rights as if we bought a kind of Lego set mm-hmm. with a picture of ownership on the cover 
and we have to build up until we get to ownership. We have to put the pieces together until we get to ownership. And right. and Honoré says, of course, we don't have to do that. There are lots of things we can do with our Lego bricks. And when we look around us in the real world, we see that there are not just owners, but there are trustees, mm-hmm. there are proprietors, there are authorised mm-hmm. users, there are people who have all kinds of assemblages of property rights without counting as owners. And I think it's kind of therefore unfortunate that when people talk about natural resource justice, for example, that they shift immediately into this typology of common ownership, joint ownership, equal ownership, as if those are the only options. So I think actually, if we think about the incidence of property separately, it can be really helpful Mm -hmm. because it will often turn out that people have claims to for example go to particular places but not to remove resources from those places so i think it has to be an open question whether we actually do build up to something we would recognize as ownership mm-hmm. so rather than coming to the question of ocean politics from the point of view of trying to work out who the owners ought to be mm-hmm. i think we have to accept that maybe none of us could or should be owners But we might have all kinds of rights and responsibilities towards the ocean, short of that kind of model of what Honoré calls full liberal ownership. Good. So it's more like um, stewardship or something like that we might be thinking. Yeah, something along those lines, right. Um, People have raised kind of interesting proposals that we need, you know, a a kind of ocean trust or something along those lines. That might be a more useful kind of metaphor or framework rather than thinking that the the answer must be some form of ownership. Yeah, no, I was just going to say that, that. I mean, that seems right. I mean, especially since that we there seems to be clear limits on the things that we think that. So you know, say say we think that the UK, I mean, it clearly has some kinds of claims over the Lake District um, as a national park. But I doubt many of us think that even if everybody in the UK voted to sort of you know build houses all across the Lake District, that that would somehow make it permissible. And yet, if you you know think of a standard sort of um, ownership right is supposed to be the right to to sell and, and, and dispose of and to damage, you know, do whatever you want with your property, right? I mean, that's a fairly strict view of ownership rights, but I think it's much more plausible to think of ownership rights as either as, as much more fluid than that um, and not sign up to this kind of very robust view of ownership where it includes, I mean, and there's certainly some things where that's true, right? So we might think that someone can own a Picasso, but lack a right to destroy it. Um, and that wouldn't, we wouldn't have to construe that as a challenge to their ownership. We wouldn't have to say they were stewards of it. They can pass it on to their relatives. They can keep it in their houses. Perhaps, I mean, there's interesting questions about those kinds of things. You know, can they can they obscure it from from public view and so on if it's this kind of really great aesthetic good? But there there seems to either be scope within the concept of ownership rights for something much more fluid than um, what we tend to think of in ordinary sort of conversation as as owning something, um, or yeah, this kind of um, just granting that we don't have these ownership rights and. But what we have are these other kinds of control rights, um, which are limited in ways which ownership rights aren't traditionally construed. And I mean, it seems like something like that has to be has to be right, and it's very clearly supported by our intuitions about what we do with things that are um, that are common goods in other contexts. That sounds right to me completely. And I think that a similar thought would apply if we left behind the language of ownership. I mean, interestingly, the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea doesn't use the language of ownership. It doesn't say that we own the sea. And shift to the language of sovereignty. 
I think we also there want to say that we've kind of inherited the idea that sovereignty over resources, if you like, must come as a package deal with all of these all of these incidents familiar to the idea of permanent sovereignty. But it doesn't need to be that way. And it may well be the case that nobody ought to exercise that kind of sovereignty over the ocean or parts of the ocean. Mm. I mean, you think now about the sort of the idea that, um, you know, China leased Hong Kong, right? I mean, it just seems mad right. to think the idea that your sovereignty rights would include something like that right that you get to sort of <laughs> rent out a bit of territory that's got people living on it and sort of give them to someone else for a year and then you know the 99 years and then, then, then you get them back i mean um given that that just seems such a bizarre thing right um it clearly again you know whatever sovereignty is it's not that um right. Right. <laughs> so uh, again there seems to be good reasons for thinking that that you know we can if we had we if we have a plausible idea of sovereignty then Perhaps sovereignty is the way to go, um, but we shouldn't make the mistake of equating sovereignty, as you say. You know, this must entail ownership in that very robust sense, because we just, you know, right. our intuition is not as if we all voted to get rid of Devon, um, that the UK government could just sort of sell off Devon to the French or something, right? right. I mean, it's just, <laughs> it's, um, it, it's not whatever it is. It's not that. No, and of course, if we do insist on raising the own the, the question of who the owners of the sea ought to be or who has sovereignty over the sea we have another potential answer that we shouldn't kind of dismiss out of hand which is that it's not us human beings at all right it's the other things that live there now i'm not sure that in that case i want to commit myself to the language of sovereignty or ownership either but i think the argument is worth kind of running that the the other animals out there for example to whom the ocean is actually home might have stronger rights to it than we do in many ways. Yeah, so you make that point in the, in the book, Chris. I was going to, was going to uh, come on to this because you make that that case very powerfully. That uh, so it, it was it in the I'm going to mangle this, I'm sure, but in the the United Nations statement, I can't remember which one it was because there've been so many. Um, but there, there's there's no reference at all to marine animals apart from as a resource uh, for humans to use. Yeah, that's in the Law of the Sea Convention, right? That's so it's yeah, yeah. that gets called our Constitution for the Oceans, but it yeah. it's remarkable that it's a legal document for a place where humans basically don't live. Hmm. It doesn't mention the creatures that do live there, other than as you say, as potential property. Yeah, and that, I think that just looks wildly inappropriate now. I think. Hmm. Go, go on, Ham. Sorry, no. I was just going to say it really reminds me of the um, so the um, all of the legislation that there is on cultural heritage. Um, there's nothing about its social meaning until really late. So not until you get the Borough Charter, which isn't like the 70s or something. Until then, none of the conventions on cultural property mention anything about its value for the people, you know, for the culture it belongs to. It's just yeah. completely. It's all about you know. It's kind of knowledge value or its age value and so on and sort of you know what why archaeologists might find it interesting and completely omits any thought about the thing that most of the thing actually really matters about this stuff right is is um is just completely absent mm. from all of these conventions and it sounds like this is kind of a really yeah. again just a really sort of i mean really interesting right? <laughs> as a kind of sort of sociological fact but that um just just it just seems unbelievable that you would draft all this legislation and just really the the animals are just, you know, important as property, but with no kind of intrinsic mm. role to play in, in thinking about how we might treat the ocean. 
So, so if someone's listening, uh, if anyone's listening to us, Chris, so how, how might how might you apart, apart from my mom probably, um, how might you go about um, saying that, uh, for example, you know, whales, dolphins, etc., uh, you know, have rights or you know should be taken account of, not just as property. And then, how might we think then about other sea wildlife uh, in that regard? What I do in the book, which is aimed kind of at a, a wider readership. Mm-hmm. So I don't, I'm not, amb- I'm not intellectually ambitious here. I help myself to some easy, some easy cases. Neither is this podcast, Chris. Okay, good. <laughs> so all I do really in that chapter of the book was just to say, if we take what may be our best account of where rights come from, the kind of interest mm-hmm. theory of rights, it looks as though we can tell a pretty compelling story for why we should include at least cetaceans in that picture. Because it looks as though, just as we think, for example, torture is bad in the human case because it's A, extremely painful, and B, denies people their agency and is intended to. That looks like being the case when it comes to whales and dolphins Mm -hmm. too. So it looks to be similarly objectionable. Now, obviously, opening up that account in a much more complex way or a much more comprehensive way is going to just be really difficult. It would take far more than a book to try to establish what interests we think starfish have and all kinds of marine creatures have. So I really just try and get my foot in the door by saying there is a superficial plausibility here in the cetacean case. And I think that's enough really to change the way that we think about these these questions that mm-hmm. helps motivate the shift from thinking about these questions. These are questions of resource justice, right? Who gets to use these resources, taking whales and dolphins as resources, to a question about who has interests in the protection of the ocean environment? Whose interests mm-hmm. should the ocean be governed in? Assuming it might have to be us that does the governing, yeah. in whose interests, to whose interests should we defer when we make those kinds of decisions? Great. Listen, uh, Chris, that was absolutely fascinating. I think we better probably leave it there. So again, the book is called A Blue New Deal. It's got loads of fascinating discussions, lots of things we haven't been able to talk about. And pictures. And pictures as well. I know. I know. Um, It's not it's not it's not your normal book of philosophy and and legal history at all. Um, Thanks, Chris. That that was that was great. Uh, Thanks for coming on and and talking to us about it. And Helen, thanks also for for coming back and and talking as well. Um, And I think we'll we'll leave things there. Thanks to all of you for listening uh, to this episode. And all being well, we'll be talking with you next week on Philosophy Takes on the News. 